0: Please uh, turn in your Bibles to uh, Psalm 10. I'm going to read through the psalm, and then we'll, I'll pray, and then we'll get into it. <clears throat> psalm 10. Why do you stand afar off, O Yahweh? Why do you hide yourself in times of distress? In his lofty pride, the wicked hotly pursues the afflicted. Let them be caught in the thoughts which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his soul's desire. And the greedy man curses and spurns Yahweh. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says in his heart, I will not be shaken. From generation to generation, I will not be in adversity. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the places of the villages where one lies in wait. In the hiding places he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lies in wait in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lies in wait to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Yahweh, O God. Lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said in his heart, you will not require it. You have seen it, for you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. Yahweh is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his hand, his land. O oh, Yahweh, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will cause your ear to give heed, to give justice to the orphan and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for guiding us through this day and um, to this time and place. And as we come to uh, look at your word, to look at this uh, particular psalm, the psalm of David, and to uh, glean from it, help us to understand, help us to receive wisdom. And to apply that wisdom to our lives, that we may grow in Christ-likeness and grow in obedience and faithfulness to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay. recently heard, um, actually from a couple sources, but from one pastor that, um, I believe it was a pastor or author speaking, that one of the reasons for the weakness of the modern church, is that most of our contemporary songs and hymns don't address many of the issues of the Christian life. Those um, harder issues, those more difficult issues, those issues um, that result in pain and sorrow and grief and lament, not to mention the primary issue of shallow theology in our contemporary songs and, and hymns. Um, not all of them, but most of them, that it, um, probably because of the prosperity of our culture that um, and most of us would like to sing about happy things, and we'd like to focus on happy things, but that's not, life is not always happy. It's not always pleasing, and, and oftentimes there's difficulties, and uh, we need to express those difficulties, and and even sing about them. And sing about where our hope is. Um, I also recently heard a podcast. In which uh, two pastors. Um, you know speaking about pastoral ministry. that That's a subject of the podcast. As they interact with one another. About different topics of pastoral ministry. And just ministry in general. And they were talking about the importance of pastoral lament. Of pastors being able to lament in ministry, which is not to be confused with pastoral complaining, <laughs> which uh, pastors do complain as anybody else. Um, but in thinking about lament, which is the primary subject of this psalm, and, and is even in many psalms, uh, there is a, a close resemblance or uh, to complaining. But is, uh, lamenting and complaining aren't exactly the same. Um, complaining is, is more along the lines of the motive of, uh, I deserve better. This shouldn't be happening to me. L- lamenting is more along the lines of just a grieving over the, the brokenness of the world, the sinfulness of the world, uh, the, your own uh, situation, uh, being sinned against. Um, things that are, in a sense, outside of your own control, and, and we see this in, in, in many psalms. Um, and there's a sense that lamenting and grieving is a part of the Christian life. It, it, it happens. We we uh, we face trials. We face challenges. We lose loved ones. Um, we look around in our uh, culture, and maybe even close and closer in our neighborhoods, our communities, that there's um, there's sin, there's brokenness, there's um, upset, there's uh, uh, just wickedness at times, and we shouldn't be indifferent to that. We shouldn't be indifferent to the wickedness in our world, the sinfulness, the upsets, the just. The brokenness, and we see uh, throughout the Psalms, many of which from David, we see this this concept of lamenting, of David pouring out his heart before God, and and part of it is as we see as Spurgeon, and I've quoted this several times, uh, this quote from Spurgeon, how. He says uh, he's, he's never so low that he had not seen David lower, and he was never so high that he had not seen David higher in the Psalms. And there is a sense that, that David seems to, be, seems to have been an emotional person. Um, and, and he expresses his emotions in his Psalms. He, and, and we benefit from that, that we are taught to um, pour out our heart before God. And this is one of David's psalms. It doesn't exactly say um, most of the psalms of David has, have this superscription, this heading that, that um, indicates that it is a psalm of David. But there's something about this psalm that um, it's actually uh, a pair with 9, with Psalm 9. As uh, I've said before, that um, some of the psalms that you go through in the Psalter... They seem to be paired with other psalms, uh, closely linked. As uh, the psalms were not written a- in the-, the order in which we see them in our Bibles, they were written in different order, but they are compiled in this order. And um, there is a sense where we can see Psalm one and two is known as a pair, and some have, uh, many have believed that that was one psalm that was later split up. Uh, 3 and 4 the same, uh, 6 and 7 the same, and 9 and 10. Um, also, uh, 42 and 43. Um, and and many would believe that these pairs have been one psalm at some point, but uh, the arguments um, aren't sort of a, a closed case, so to speak. They, they aren't so strong that it's, it's sure. But the argument for Psalm 9 and 10 um, being one psalm is pretty strong. It's probably the strongest. And it, it probably most definitely is, was, one psalm. Uh, Dr. Varner, in his commentary, his devotional commentary on the Psalter, Awake, O Harp, he writes this. He says, Hebrew manuscripts compri- combine these two psalms into one composition. The ancient Septuagint Greek version combines the two as well. Therefore, beginning with this psalm, the numbering of the psalms in our English Bibles is one-off from the Hebrew Bible. For example, next we will look at Psalm 11, which is Psalm 10 in the Hebrew Bible. Their content, however, is the same. A further indication that these psalms were originally one is that the two together form an acrostic with successive verses beginning with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So you don't see that, but in Hebrew there is a sense where the verses, kind of like an ABC fashion, but even then it's not exactly um, ABC, so to speak, in Hebrew, or Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, and so on. Um, But nonetheless, it's the, the topic, the subject, that is the same. As we see in 9, there is a sense of um, his frustration over um, unrighteousness and, and wickedness. And there's this theme of justice and injustice that we see through Psalm 9. And then here in Psalm 10, we get this theme of lament and uh, frustration. And uh, as many have uh, titled it, Somewhere Along the Lines of Frustration. We see this theme of frustration and lament coming out. And, and there is, in a sense, a, a two distinct parts in this psalm. And so that's how I've outlined it. And we will see, uh, as we look at this psalm, that it's really just two expressions of David concerning the evil and brokenness of this world. I, uh, I see two uh, heartfelt, heart-wrenching expressions of David um concerning uh, wickedness around him and in this world, and primarily the pride, the prosperity, and the propagation of the wicked, which seems um, in his time, his day and age, as in ours, it seems that uh, wickedness uh, appears to go unhindered, unpunished, and even promoted. And because of that, we see first from David his frustrated lament. In verses 1 to 11, and then in verses 12 to 18, we'll see his faithful plea. But first we see his frustrated lament, and that begins with, in a sense, a, a, a complaint almost, as if he's uh, uh, charging God. We'll see in within his lament, we see his complaint against God, and then his charges against the ungodly. But first his complaint against God, and is uh, in verse 1, as he says, Why do you stand afar off, O Yahweh? Why do you hide yourself in times of distress? And it's, since we, we get this pair of these two questions, why, why, why? And, and this, you know, many people who grieve the loss of somebody or um, have just come out of a uh, traumatic experience or have just heard uh, news of, of something traumatic uh, uh, some uh, destruction or disaster um, oftentimes th- those are the words that come out that just come out why 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 and this is where 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 David is but but it's almost as if He's complaining against God because he knows that, that, that God is in control. He's in complete control and, and then that he could do something. One uh, commentator, he says these two identical expressions of lament boldly bur- blurt out the psalmist's questions. God, why do you remain aloof? It's as if you're distant, as if you're, you're indifferent." And this is, David says similar things in in Psalm 13. You can see he says the same thing in the beginning of that psalm. How long, O Yahweh, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? He says a similar thing in Psalm 22. In verse 11, we see in Psalm 22, he says, Be not far from me, for distress is near, near, for there is none to help. And that, as we know, that psalm uh, is a, a messianic psalm, um, kind of prophesying the crucifixion of Jesus. And then in Psalm 38, we see a similar, um, similar expression. As he says in verse 21 of Psalm uh, 38, Do not forsake me, O Yahweh, O my God. Be, do not be far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation." But here in Psalm 10 in the beginning, it's almost a direct complaint against God, as if He's He's almost as if He's saying, You're distant and separated from the situation. We, we, we can't find you when we need you. You're, you're not near to us. You don't understand what's going down here. What's going on down here? That the wicked are prospering. And, and I don't think it's an exact charge against Yahweh though it seems like I think that's part of his lament part of his grieving so much that he knows and he understands that only God can fix this situation only God can rectify it and so he goes to God as, as we should go to God but I, I think it's a, a bit too bold almost but as he he speaks this is almost as he said you know you're afar off you're almost as if you're separated from us, from this situation. Well, there is a sense that that David is right. He is separated because he is holy. He's holy, holy, holy. He's separate from sin. Sin cannot dwell with him. There's also a sense that he he is charging on that as, as if God is hiding. We, we we can't find you when we need you. But there's. There's a sense that, that God could retort back and, and say, "Well, who are you? You know, I, I'm no man's debtor. It, it doesn't, doesn't. I, I don't owe you anything. I don't owe you anything." And then there's a sense that we, we see this this distance. You're not near to us. You're not with us. But as uh, even. Uh, Through Isaiah. Isaiah says, Your sins have made a separation between you and your God. And so there's no reason why um, God should be close. There's no reason why um, he needs to uh, deliver David or anybody or rectify the situation. As the psalmist says in Psalm 115, Uh, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And and he has his own way. He has his own plans. Uh, He is sovereign. He's in charge. And and he will bring about justice in his his own time and manner. I'd like you to see something in uh, Psalm 139. Because it is something similar. As Psalm 139 is also a psalm of David, but it's, it's more um, worshipful and exalting of God as, as David goes through Psalm 139 and he speaks about um, the attributes and the character of God, Ma- mainly his omni, uh, omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, his sovereignty over all things, uh, his creative power. And his character as well but as as David is in Psalm 139 and and he's just glorifying God about how God has searched him he's known him he knows when he sits down when he rises up there's there's no place that David can go apart from God or or flee from him Uh, God knows him from beginning to end um, every second of his life um, every detail of his being God has ordained and decreed. He follows him. And then, and then in verse 17 of Psalm 139, is, is David is, is just contemplating God and, and uh, how he's created him and the world and everything around it. And he says, How precious are your thoughts to me, O God? How vast is the sum of them? If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. And then he turns and he he he, he almost. Uh, it's as if the record skips here in this psalm. And he says, "Oh that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of bloodshed, depart from me, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain." And it's almost as if he he's they're they're close by, and he's frustrated with with them there. But he had just come down from this this high and lofty praise of God and there's something similar here in Psalm 10 but a little bit more in terms of the grieving of of uh, the the wickedness around him and then he turns his sight towards the wicked he pours out his heart towards to God in his lament of the wickedness and then he turns his, View towards the wicked, and he, in a sense, argues uh, for God to judge them. He he, he presents a, a list of charges against the ungodly, almost as as if this this long list of why God should uh, come close, why he should uh, reveal himself, why he should uh, uh, judge these people, and, and deliver David and and all the faithful. And so he turns from his complaint against God or his, his, uh, to uh, his charges against the ungodly, in verses 2 to 11, as he speaks about the, the wicked all around them. And it's almost as if he's speaking about one person, but it's, it's all the ungodly, all the wicked. Uh, it, it personifies them I and mean, characterizes the wicked almost as one person. He says, In his lofty pride, the wicked hotly pursues the afflicted. Let them be caught in the thoughts which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his soul's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns Yahweh. It's almost as if he's saying he needs to be caught and tried. He's getting away with things. In his pride, the wicked pursues evil and oppression. He boasts and he blasphemes you, Lord. He's, he's greedy. He curses and spurns your name. He does not seek you, but he actively denies your existence. Verse 4, the wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. There's no God. I'm going to get away scot-free. And that's the worst part about it. As, as, as David is thinking about the wickedness of uh, uh, of the, the culture and the people around him and the, just the sinfulness of, of, of the wicked and everything that they do. And the worst part about it is that they prosper. He prospers. Verse 5, it says, His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. And We can almost imply that the adversaries, the adversaries of the wicked are the righteous ones. But but it may be some other ones that are wicked as well. We can think of of those um, kind of uh, businessmen or con men, um, uh, wicked people in in, in uh, drug cartels or uh, gangs or mafia. Uh, those people that um, prosper through their wickedness. Through their lying and cheating and stealing and, and conning people, but also a sense that that uh, there's no justice that that um, there's people in authority are unrighteous as well. That, that they're just allowing this to happen. That it goes unchecked. And then also, because of his prosperity, because of the prosperity of the wicked, he grows in his pride and boasting of evil. Verse 6, he says in his heart, I will not be shaken from generation to generation. I will not be in adversity. And there's almost a sense as this downward spiral as the culture or the peoples around him decline or they get worse and worse, the wicked get worse and worse uh, they, they they start off they get away with something and then that emboldens them to do more wickedness and and, and that spreads and and then they boast about it and that may even encourage the, the other people around them to to engage in wickedness as well because you know that guy got away with it and and look at him he he doesn't have to work he's just going out and cheating people and stealing from them and he's not getting caught and he, he, he doesn't have to you know uh, live on and uprightly and and so it just snowballs so so to speak within the, the um, culture and it, it descends further and further and further and we see this even in our own culture and and uh, it's in a sense a story of human history and it's almost as if we shouldn't be shocked we, we should be surprised when a culture is righteous given the sinfulness of mankind. But nonetheless, we shouldn't be indifferent to wickedness. And, and that's the sad thing, is that sometimes that <clears throat> we see so much wickedness that we grow indifferent. And part of... Uh, Part of living righteously, part of the Christian life, is to think about things the way God does. As as David says in in Psalm 7, that that God is a righteous judge who feels indignation every day. We're also told to, as Paul um, says in Ephesians, to be angry and do not sin. We should have a righteous indignation. We, we, should, uh, be, uh, we should lament the wickedness around us, and, and, and we should um, speak out against it. We should expose evil by speaking the truth in love. And, and when we're in a place like David is, where it seems as if he has uh, no way to, to uh, do anything about it, that we should pour out our heart before God. And that's what David is doing. He's he's listing all the things that the wicked are doing, and, and they're prospering it be, because of it. And then, because they're prospering, then they boast about it. In verse seven: His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. Further, uh, pouring out the evil that that is in his heart. There's, uh, as some say, there's no filter. There's no filter. He has has no restraint upon his mouth. And it's really just exposing what's in his heart. But then also he positions himself to do evil. Uh, Verses uh, 8 to 11, we see that he sits in the places of the villages where one lies in wait. He hides to kill the innocent he lies in wait, verse 9, in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lies in wait to catch the afflicted. He, verse 10, he crouches, he bows down. He, the, his evil is premeditated and planned. And, and then uh, verse 11, he boasts about getting away with it. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. And that's in, in a sense, uh, as, as we say, he, he adds insult to injury. And this is where this frustration in David's heart just builds and builds and builds. And there's no place to to go except to God with it. It almost feel, feels powerless. And a large part of lament and David's lament and something... Probably the main thing that we learn from this psalm is, that, uh, is to pour out our frustrations, our cares and our anxieties, to pour them out before God. And, and, and to remember that he knows, that he sees, that he is not indifferent and he will, in a sense, deal with it in his perfect time. That we are not to be indifferent. We are to bring it to God, Everything. I'd like you to turn with me for a moment to uh, Romans chapter 9. And as we look at the world, we look at the sinfulness of the world, and it's easy to get discouraged, it's easy to get frustrated, it's easy to get angry, and, and we should, in a sense, feel some sort of frustration and anger at the sinfulness of the world, but we should also remember that there is a time that there is a judgment. But more than that, that, that God is not indifferent, and he has a reason for this. He has a purpose why he uh, restrains um, his judgment, why he holds back. And he kind of talks about this. Uh, uh, Paul talks about this as he, he explains the gospel to the Romans. And here he, he's primarily speaking about uh salvation and judgment and election, and he says this in verse fourteen of chapter nine, Romans chapter nine he says, What shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? May it never be talking about god's choice of Jacob over Esau, not that one was uh, Jacob was better than Esau, so to speak, except that he understood uh, the significance and the blessing of that birthright but nonetheless uh, he was the one that God chose rather than Esau and Paul goes on he says for he says to Moses I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion so then does it it does not depend on the one who wills or the one who runs but on God who has mercy for the scripture says to pharaoh for this very reason for this very purpose i raise you up in order to demonstrate my power in you and in order that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires you will say to me then why does he still find fault for who resists his will on the contrary who are you o man who answers back to god will the thing molded say to the molder why did you make me like this Or does not the potter have authority over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And what if God, wanting to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath, having been prepared for destruction, and in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he Prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. And here it is, as Paul is speaking about election and predestination and just God's sovereign choice over whom he will save and whom he will judge. And he says in verse 2 What if God, wanting to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience? Vessels of wrath having been prepared for destruction. And this is really the answer to the quote-unquote problem of evil. That this, um, if you're familiar with that problem, this is a problem that many um, atheists and unbelievers will bring up. That um, if, if God is good then He will judge the wicked. He will judge evil. There won't be any evil unless He's not powerful enough. And so there's this problem. Either He's not powerful enough to do something or He's not good. And and neither is true. God is good and He is powerful, but He he does things according to His own will and His own time frame. And His ways are higher than our ways. And part of the reasons why He endures, as Paul says in Romans 9.22, part of the reason why He endures with much patience vessels of wrath is because He has prepared them for destruction. He will demonstrate His wrath, His power, His justice. Everything God does is for His glory. And there is a judgment to come. But it's in his own time frame. And he is sovereign and he is right to wait according to his will. Yet we are not to be indifferent to evil. We pour out our heart before God. We still pray that he would do something. We ask him to intervene. We ask him to judge. And he will judge. And so this is the second part of David's psalm, as he uh, cries out to God, as he pours out his lament to him concerning the wickedness of, of, the, of the people around him. And it's almost as if he's, he's kind of done. He, he, he pours it all out concerning the wickedness of the wicked, and then he turns back to God. And we see his faithful plea. We've seen his frustrated lament and now his faithful plea in verses 12 to 18. He says, Arise, O Yahweh. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the, the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said in his heart, You will not require it. You have seen it, for you have beheld mischief and vexation. To take it into your hand, the unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan." break the arm of the wicked and the evil doer seek out his wickedness until you find none that's per- the first part of his faithful plea is this cry for divine retribution in verses 12 to 15 that he cries out to God in a sense to arise As he would say um, in other psalms, and and, uh, linking back to Old Testament passages, rise up, O Lord, Uh, uh, let your enemies be scattered before you. Arise, strike, and deliver. Deliver the afflicted, deliver the, the, um, the weak, the helpless, the oppressed. Deliver them. Vindicate yourself, in a sense. As he says in verse 3, why has the wicked spurned God? He has said in his heart, you will not require it. The the wicked not only um, commit wickedness, but they charge God with almost like, uh, you're not going to do anything. I'm doing this all day long, and and I'm cheating people and robbing people and committing all sorts of acts of wickedness, and, and I'm getting away with it. So David, in a sense, not not only call, calls and cries out to God to uh arise and strike down the wicked, but to vindicate himself in the sense of concerning his own justice, and then to vindicate his people who have placed their trust in him. Verse 14, you have seen it, for you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. We see throughout the Old Testament that God's heart for the fatherless, for the orphan, and for the widow, for the helpless, He even calls his own people to have the same heart and the same compassion towards orphans and widows and the helpless to help them. And David, in a sense, is saying that these people, the orphan, the widow, the helpless, the oppressed, they, they've committed themselves to you because you, you're the only one that can really help, that can really uh, uh, deliver them. And so please vindicate them. He cries for divine retribution to, uh, to arise, to strike, to deliver, to vindicate himself, to vindicate his people, to vindicate those who have trusted in him. And then fourthly, to neutralize punish and purge the wicked in verse 15 break the arm of the wicked and the evil doer in this sense of uh, as we read in, in many parts of the Old Testament this sense of and is even attributed to God his right arm or his right hand, uh, that strong arm or that that arm that you use for, uh, to carry the sword, or to fight, or even uh, wield, um, say, a hammer to build something—it's it, the strong arm. And David is calling upon God, upon Yahweh, to break that arm, that that main arm of the wicked that they use to do wickedness. He, he says, "Break it, neutralize them, uh, so that they cannot do wickedness anymore." But more than that, purge the wicked. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. Seek out what is in his heart, in his mind, in his thoughts, his plans. Seek it out, draw it out, judge it, so that there's no more to be judged. In a sense, his wickedness is purged. And this could hint at somewhat of a redemption as... The Bible clearly says no one is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But there is grace, there is mercy. And God um, does forgive sin as he's forgiven us of our sin. And he will purge us of all of our sin. That is part of uh, our sanctification, part of salvation, that he will uh, purge all of our sin from us. He will uh, seek out our own wickedness. He exposes our own wickedness, and, and, and as he exposes our own wickedness, um, uh, he brings it, in a sense, uh, to the forefront of our minds, and we confess that, and then um, he, he forgives us of that, those sins, and he, in a sense, purges our own wickedness. So David could be hinting at that, Or he could be hinting at the fact that he just desires God to destroy them completely and remove them from the earth. So we see this cry for divine retribution. But then second, the last part of David's faithful plea is a confession of confidence. Verses 16 to 18, as he says, Yahweh is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. Oh, Yahweh, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will cause your ear to give heed, to give justice to the orphan and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. He has this confession of confidence that, that God is in control. It's almost uh, uh, the opposite or, or, or um, the mirror image of what he says in, in verse 1. As he says, why do you stand afar off, O Yahweh? Why do you hide yourself in times of distress? But then here in verse 16, he says, Yahweh is king forever and ever. He reigns. And then there's this, this second line of, of verse 16. He says, nations have perished from his land. Almost hinting back at the conquest of Joshua. That, that the nations, the peoples that have inhabited the land of Israel that inhabited that land that was deeded to the descendants of Abraham, that those nations have perished because they were judged. They were judged through Joshua and through the angel of the Lord going before Joshua and the people to destroy those wicked nations. It was part of God's judgment and, and Israel was supposed to uh, destroy all of them. As part of judgment on those nations. And David links back to that, that, that Yahweh is king forever and ever, and the, the nations have perished. He does judge the nations. He will judge them completely. And so he confesses confidence in God's judgment concerning his reign and his renown as king, as judge, but also concerning his character and his care. Verse 17, O Yahweh, you have heard the desire of the humble, you will strengthen their heart. You will cause your ear to give heed. He cares for the humble. He will strengthen them. He will strengthen their heart to, to live, to carry on, uh, to give them resolve, to live righteously in the midst of a wicked culture, not to uh, be tempted by the wicked around them. He will strengthen their heart, strengthen their faith. He will cause your ear to... You will cause your ear to give heed. You will give heed to the cries of the humble, of the orphan, of the oppressed. Shows David's confidence in the character and care of Yahweh. Also his confidence, third, in Yahweh's justice and rule. Verse 18, to give justice to the orphan and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. Terror. There's this confidence that one day God will rule and reign in righteousness. He will uh, vindicate himself. He will uh, purge the earth of all wickedness. He will uh, return. He will make all things new as, as Jesus um, proclaimed in Revelation. At the end of Revelation that he will come back and make all things new. And that, that's really our hope. That's our hope. And there's, it's interesting that there's there's many psalms like this, uh, Psalms of David, but there's one such psalm that I think mirrors this psalm very well. And there's some lessons for us in that psalm. And, and I'd like to uh, finish, I'd like to end with uh, part of this psalm. So turn with me to Psalm 73. This is a psalm very much like Psalm 10. But there's... I think clearer lessons in this psalm, and I like to read from not the whole psalm, but from verse 1 down to 20, Psalm 73, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the boastful. I saw the peace of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, and they are not stricken along with the rest of mankind. Therefore lofty pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The delusions of their heart overflow. They scoff and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue goes through the earth. Therefore his people return here to his place, and waters of fullness are drunk by them. They say, how does God know, and is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure, and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long, and reproved every morning." If I had said, I will recount thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I gave thought to know this, it was trouble in my sight. Until, until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end." Surely you set them in slippery places. You cause them to fall to destruction. How they become desolate in a moment. They are completely swept away by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. Just as David does, his psalm, Psalm of Asaph, he laments and is frustrated over the prosperity of the wicked and so much so that he's almost tempted to go astray himself and he questions, why have, I, why have I been righteous? Why have I worked so hard to do what is right and to keep my heart pure when all these people around me, they prosper and they, they don't even care about the rules, they don't care about God, they don't care about righteousness or wickedness or, or, or anything upright. But then he said, when I gave thought to this, to know this, it was trouble in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God or in our day and age, until I came to church, until I was, uh, until I was uh, confronted with the word of God and I heard the word of God, and then I understood their end. That there is an end. That there is a judgment to come. They might prosper in the meantime, they, they might seem to uh, uh, go unchecked and, and unhindered in their wickedness to just uh, prosper and no one cares and, and almost even so much so that they, they do their wickedness in, in plain sight and then boast about it. But as one preacher said and, and many have said after him, there's payday someday. There's payday someday. And... and We find hope in that. We're not to gloat in that over the wicked. We're to still call them to repentance, to faith, to uh, turn from their wickedness while there is time, to uh, seek God while he may be found, to call upon him while he is near. But our hope ultimately is in the fact that no matter how evil it may get, no matter how bad the world may get, there is a judgment to come. And God will make all things right. Until then, we strive for holiness. We strive for purity. We strive for righteousness. We proclaim righteousness. We proclaim the gospel. But we also, in those times in which it seems too hard to bear, we have a resource, and that resource is in God to go to him and to pour out our complaints before him, to cast our anxieties upon him because he cares for us. Heavenly Father, we can read this psalm and many of the psalms, and they are a resource for us, a a place to go, a a refuge in times of trouble that we can read about you and and, and, uh, about David and the other um, writers of the psalms and other faithful saints throughout the ages and and how they went to you, how they poured their hearts out before you, and, and just to think about the wickedness in their own day and age and the wickedness in our day and age and that uh, as Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun mankind is still just as wicked as he's ever been and we see this wickedness in our own culture and we can easily be uh, get frustrated and angry and there's a sense that we shouldn't go about with indifference, that, that we should um, be, have a righteous indignation toward the evil in our world. But we have a place to go to you with our frustrations. So help us to lean upon you, to trust in you, and to know that there is a day coming in which you will return to make all things new, that you will rule and reign in righteousness. And that's ultimately where our hope lies, not in this world in the world to come. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.